Well, good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be in uh, verses 50 through 58, wrapping up our series. We've titled Lynchpin, and uh, it's been an amazing five weeks working our way through this amazing chapter of Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthian church. Two weeks ago, we talked about death. You know, we're just singing about it. Um, But we talked about how death can be a pretty big motivator, right? Uh, Live like you're dying was McGraw's song. But we said that the resurrection is an even greater motivator. Live like you're rising. That That can change everything about how you look at life, how you approach your decisions, your values, your priorities, all of those things. So uh, death can motivate, it can also really inhibit, it can literally paralyze us when it gets in our uh, frame of vision. More than anything, death strikes fear in the human heart, doesn't it? I, I wonder how often we do what we do almost with a subconscious awareness of fear being uh, kind of around us in so many different ways. We all have that kind of figurative picture of the reaper looming around, waiting to uh, take our lives from us. I think of it like a bully threatening to take our life if we don't cooperate. And for the Christian, cooperation can look a little bit like playing it safe, or having a privatized faith, or perhaps even a dedication to accumulation. That can be uh, our way of cooperating with death. So what does it look like when you find a person who isn't intimidated by death, who stands against that, pushes back, The Apostle Paul strikes me as a good example. Let me read something that he wrote in Philippians 1, 18 through 21. I think this is what you get when you have a person who isn't pushed around by death. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. See, there were others who were proclaiming the gospel and almost seemingly in competition with Paul. And he's like, hey, Who cares, man, if the gospel's being proclaimed? I rejoice in that. He goes on, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's incarcerated. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. For that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body Here's the key, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are the words of a man who isn't intimidated by death in the least. You you can find in his words conviction and courage and contentment. So we don't need to fear death. But having said that, we need to take it very seriously. It is a great, fierce enemy of humanity that must be dealt with. 
Thankfully, a day is coming when death will be abolished. Paul writes in this chapter that we've been studying, in verse 26, he says, the last enemy to be abolished is death. So there's a day coming when death will be no more. And the end of this chapter gives us a glimpse of how that's going to go down and, and the part that we're actually going to play in that. So let me pick up in verse 50. And Paul starts with a practical problem that all of us faith, face as we live in a, a death-tainted world. Verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, and you could put in, and sisters in there, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So a lot of figurative words there that we need to make sure we understand. The reference to flesh and blood is really just a reference to the natural, physical being that all of us have. It's a part of us. It's not separated from our spirit. It, both of those make up all of us and who we are. And so flesh and blood in its natural form cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable or that which would spoil, that can't inherit the imperishable, that which will not spoil. Now in the kingdom of God, think about this, there is no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no sickness, and there certainly isn't any death. Now, our perishable bodies, on the other hand, are plagued by all of those, aren't they? And so, it, it just makes sense, logically, that you can't take a perishable body and put it in a realm that everything is imperishable. Those two are in contradiction to one another. They're incompatible. So, Paul is saying that's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And in order to physically inhabit the kingdom of God, that part of us, that flesh and blood part of us, has to be changed. Otherwise, heaven would be off limits to us, even with a redeemed spirit. Now, with all of the attention that's been given to the resurrection throughout this chapter, we've been talking about something that's related to those who have died. But another question gets raised, what about those who are alive? If you're saying Jesus is coming back, certainly it's possible there will be Christians who are alive. What's going to happen to them? Because they have the same flesh and blood body that those who died uh, possessed. So Paul's answer to that in 51 and 52 is, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So uh, you've heard us talk about this concept of mystery before in our New Testament and that's simply the idea of something which was previously hidden which has now been revealed. And so what Paul's revealing here is uh, the theological concept of rapture. Rapture, I'm sure all of you have heard of that at some point or another, maybe got in a vigorous debate about what that was and when it happens. And so uh, we talked about the millennium 
two weeks ago. Today we're going to talk very briefly about the rapture. Typically, it's, I think generally most people accept that that will take place right before the millennium. And the event that will separate the rapture from the millennium is the second coming of Christ. Prior to that, we're told in a variety of places, I'll read you some passages in a moment, um, the church, those who have believed and those who are dead in Christ will be caught up with Christ in the air. Some will say that that will happen prior to the tribulation, which is outlined in the book of Daniel. So pre-trib, rapture right before the tribulation begins. Mid-trib, there's a three and a half year key break that takes place where things go off the rails. Some will say the uh, rapture takes place right there in the middle. And then post-trib, that would be an understanding that uh, the, the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation and usher in the second coming of Christ. Very smart, godly people land on all three of those. So I will leave that to you to do some study, some reading, and you can land wherever you want to. The most important thing is there will be a rapture and there will be a return of Christ. Those are two things that must take place if the scriptures are to be reliable and true. So, moving forward, let me uh, read to you uh, how Paul described this in 1 Thessalonians. This is a key passage related to rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Now, what's interesting here is he's, he's trying to assure them about those who have already died. Because there was an expectation that they would be alive when Christ returns. So he's reassuring them, which is a little bit different than 1 Corinthians, but same event. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the importance of the resurrection... Even so, through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. There's a parallel to 1 Corinthians. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So regardless of where in the, um, in the tribulation this takes place, the bottom line is Christ will come the dead in Christ will receive their resurrected bodies. So their bodies will be glorified and joined with their spirit with Christ. Then secondly, all this is going to happen in, remember, the twinkling of an eye, instantaneously. But the, those who are alive in Christ will also receive a resurrected body, a transformation just like that, and they will join Christ, the dead in Christ, in the air. That's the rapture. That's how that's going to take place. Uh, in Philippians 
Paul writes this, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we are assured of this. This promise is meant to give us courage. I mean, look at the last words of the First Thessalonians passage I read. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This idea of glorification, which is the final step in our salvation. We have justification, sanctification, then glorification. So that aspect of our salvation is meant to give us courage. Not then, but now. As you and I face death all around us in all of its forms, we are meant to live with courage, knowing that the worst thing that death can do is take our physical life, which is only a temporary thing because we're going to get that life back in a glorious form one day. That's pretty good news. That gives me courage. Paul goes on to describe this whole idea as death being swallowed up in victory. What a beautiful picture. What an awesome statement. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So I I want you to begin to connect this idea. Death, remember, is the final enemy that will be abolished. And one of the ways in which that's going to take place is in you. Before death is eradicated from creation, it will be eradicated from you in a very physical sense. Death will have no place in you whatsoever, no evidence of it at all, no residue left over. Having plagued your life for all of your days, it will be gone completely. And that will be the beginning of the end for death. You will finally be free, as free as a person can possibly be. Paul doesn't describe exactly what this glorified state will be like, but but we just know qualitatively it's going to be a whole lot better than what we have now. Probably a whole lot better than we can even conceive of. And the best part of all is the bully of death will be run out of town permanently and we will be free. Paul's so excited about this, he uh, celebrates with a little brief victory song. I'm I'm sure if he could have, he might have even danced around a little bit, but he uh, borrows from Hosea 13, 14 and he uh, makes this declaration, verse 55, oh death, we just sang this, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul is literally taunting death. 
You know, we talked about not being intimidated. He's gone a step further. Like he's putting his finger in death's chest. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? I love how uh, Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O oh death? O oh death, who's afraid of you now? I wonder if you feel like you could make those statements with that kind of conviction. If you understand the gift of glorification that awaits you in the return of Christ, you can say that. It's not proud, it's not arrogant. Your confidence honestly has nothing to do with you. It's the good work that God will do on your behalf when he returns. For context, Paul explains the relationship between death, sin, and the law. He doesn't say much. It's, it's very short. Verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So death is the consequence of sin, and sin is revealed, and, and honestly, according to Romans, is even provoked by the law. So what Paul is clarifying here is that the sting of death, or that which causes death, is sin, right? Death, Genesis 3, is the fruit, the consequence, the result of sin, and when law came along, all it did was said, hey, everybody, that's sin. <laughs> that rebellious condition that's in humanity, we call it sin. And sin leads to death. So he, he defines the relationships between all of those. But the reason he does it is to say, Jesus overcame death. Jesus overcame sin. Jesus fulfilled the law. So those three things have no bearing at all upon Christ. In fact, all of those things are in subjection to him. Therefore, he can abolish death once and for all. Paul, as he commonly does, responds to this glorious truth with thanksgiving. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we're smart or talented or have a lot of stuff or have accomplished a lot in this life. The gospel is by grace, through faith, not as a result of works. A gift of God. And Paul says, thanks. Thanks to the good work of Christ on our behalf intervening, taking on death for us, absorbing the sting of death on our behalf so that we could find life. It's interesting that um, post-resurrection of Christ, um, death no longer has any power to take anything from humanity. In actuality, death, physical death, serves the redemptive plan of God. See, when you and I die, we get to go be with the Lord. So death actually serves God, not the other way around. 
I, I hope this is landing with you. I hope this is adjusting the way you think about life and the threat of death, whatever you might have felt along those lines. I want to come back to the question, what do you get when you find a person who isn't intimidated by death? What do you find? It's in Paul's exhortation at the end of this. So he's made this whole case for the glorification of your body, which will complete the work of salvation of God in you. And he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, confident, convicted, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not empty, it's not shallow, it's not meaningless. It has eternal significance. It will live on with you forever and ever. Three things stand out to me as I read this verse. These are the three things I think you would find in a person who isn't intimidated by death it would be standing firm steadfast immovable you don't give any ground you don't back up in fact you push forward which is related to the second one love big paul would say love is costly but don't be afraid of that you have nothing to lose you have everything to gain love big Give big. Serve big. Abound in the work of the Lord. Let that be your obsession. And you'll do so when you have courage. And you'll have courage as you think about the glorification of your body at the end of all things. And finally, rest easy. That may sound a little strange with what I just said, but there is a sense of contentment about a person who lives this way. In other words, they're not fueled by some kind of drivenness that's trying to achieve something. But there is this rest, this peace, that whatever happens, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. So I'm just going to live for Christ right now, right today, in this moment, with this person or this circumstance, in this situation. I'm just going to live for Christ right now. And let the chips fall where they may. Because I know at the end of time, the chips will all fall in my favor. Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I want to share with you an amazing illustration of that kind of life that I just uh, came across this week. I had remembered a, a phrase. I don't even remember how far back I heard it, but it was attributed to this guy. His name's William Whiting Borden. He was born in Chicago to an amazingly wealthy family. He had all of the 
niceties of life. I mean, it really couldn't have been any better. He came to Christ at age seven. After graduating from high school at 16 years old, he uh, was committed to none other than Yale. (laughs) Tough life. But before he went to Yale, his parents gave him the gift of a lifetime. He was able to travel the world for what might have been the first gap year program ever created. But he, uh, he traveled with a mentor literally around the world for 11 months. The interesting thing is what happened in him as he traveled the world because what he saw was a broken humanity intimidated by death. And in the midst of that, he wanted to do something about that. And he felt like as a Christ follower, he could do nothing less. So he began to think that God was calling him to vocational ministry somewhere in the world. Well, he returned uh, to begin school at Yale and began to pursue this calling. And I want to give you some statistic about his life, not in the sense of accomplishment, but I just want you to see what God did with a guy who just simply said, you can have me, whatever you want. So he goes to Yale and in his freshman year organizes 150 classmates into Bible study and prayer. And they interviewed some of those classmates and they would talk about this man who inspired them with his faith. By his senior year, that 150 group of students grew to over 1,000 who were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. He established, keep this in mind, he is uh, less than 20 years old, established the first rescue mission in New Haven, Connecticut called the Yale Hope mission. In its first year, they saw 14,000 men attend gospel meetings, 17,000 fed a warm meal, and 8,000 found a place to sleep in that mission. During his freshman year, he uh, attended a student volunteer movement conference, and there he heard about this group of people, a small group, 15 million Chinese Muslims who had no one to reach them with the gospel. And he came back to that calling that God had given him during his gap year and decided that was who God was calling him to meet. So he checked in with the China Inland Mission and eventually was invited to come. Now, because it's a Muslim culture, he needed to learn Arabic, and he needed to better understand the whole belief system of Islam. So before actually going to his missionary location, he went to Cairo, Egypt, so that he could learn Arabic and study Islam. It's funny, even there, like before he gets to the mission field, um, he starts going to work, and within his first uh, month, he had put together a plan to organize scripture distribution among the whole city of Cairo, 800,000 people in population. Here's the stunner. After three months, Bill Borden got spinal meningitis and died. Now, I imagine your first thought is, seriously? 
what a bummer of a story. <laughs> I mean, 25 years old, like, look at all he could have done with the rest of his life. I'd say he did more with his 25 years than most people do with three times that. And it was simply because he surrendered. It's, it's said that he wrote three, three phrases in his Bible at three different times. The first when he was traveling the world. The second when his father died, telling him that he, if he became a missionary, he wouldn't be able to, to take on the family business and enjoy the, the benefits of that. And then the third he wrote days before he died. Six simple words. No reserves. No retreats, no regrets. I just got to ask you, what kind of life do you want? Do you want it now or do you want it later? I think Paul and certainly Bill Borden would tell us later is better. Much better. Live for that. On uh, Borden's tombstone, there's a few things written there. Two are passages that he held very dear. Psalm 119.11, Thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then the great commission recorded in Mark, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what he was committed to. And then an observation made of him. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I sure want that to be said of me. I imagine you would like that said of you. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's a life that is not intimidated in any way by death.